I'm Kyle. And I'm Jason. And this is Monetize Media. On today's episode, we speak with Lexi Grant, founder and CEO of They Got Acquired, a digital media company focused on small and medium-sized acquisitions. Lexi is building a massive resource for entrepreneurs and professionals in the M&A space that will help all stakeholders understand the value of their business and learn from other acquisitions. Prior to the founding of They Got Acquired, Lexi built and sold a content agency, served as EVP for content at The Penny Hoarder, and sold niche website The Right Life. Listen now as Lexi walks us through her journey throughout digital media, building and selling two businesses, her long-term vision for helping founders explore acquisitions, and the constant refinement of her process. On to the interview. All right, want to welcome on Lexi Grant. Lexi is the founder and CEO of Website and Podcast They Got Acquired, along with formerly overseeing content at The Penny Hoarder, along with many other online ventures over the last decade. Lexi, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm excited to chat. So we ask each of our guests to kind of give us their origin story. Now, we don't ask you to go back to birth, but sort of how you got yourself to where you are today with They Got Acquired, how you started as an entrepreneur. So really recap, I guess for you, would be probably like the last 10 to 12 years of your journey here and feel free to be as detailed as you'd like. Yeah, sure. I started my career in journalism and I was at traditional media outlets. So I worked at the Houston Chronicle and then at US News and World Report. And that really gave me the foundation for all the things that I've worked on since then. After working in journalism for a few years, I started to dabble with running a business and eventually realized that I, I thought that was more fun, which was surprising to me because I really loved reporting. Like I love I love being able to ask people questions and stick my nose where it doesn't always belong or have, have a license to do that. So it was surprising to me that I ended up enjoying running a business. But I just love like the freedom of choosing what I wanted to work on and having the sky be the limit in terms of income. I found both those things really appealing. Yeah, so I started out with a content marketing agency. We ran blogs for other businesses. And after about five years of doing that, that agency was acquired by the Penny Hoarder, which is a personal finance media brand. And it was an aqua hire. So myself and several members of my team all went in-house there. I was a second employee, so I got to build the content operation there. And we actually had been already been running the content for about a year and a half when he bought us because he was one of our clients at my agency. So I stayed there for a bunch of years. <laughs> it, it was really fun. I got to do, you know, grow a pretty big team, a pretty big company that I probably wouldn't have done on my own. And I left there in 2019. And I kind of briefly picked up a side project that I'd worked on when I'd first started my agency. It was a content site called The Right Life, a website for writers. And I ended up selling that last year. And I did that really so I could just clear my plate to start something new. So now I'm working on They Got Acquired, which is also a media company. And we focus on acquisitions of online businesses that typically sell for six or seven or maybe low eight figures. So the smaller sales that you don't often read about. Now you can read about them because we're writing about them. <laughs> and full disclosure here, um, you know, one of your writers featured us on the site. So that was mm -hmm. thank you for the reciprocity here and, and joining us. Yeah, you have a great story. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. But, this, you know, I want to talk about your So I think you were modest. You know, you kind of ran through that quickly. And I had listened to you on a couple of other podcasts. And I want to ask you something specifically. You said early on, I believe an ebook began to sort of scratch that entrepreneurial itch for you. Talk mm -hmm. about that, because that sounds like that was the thing for you that kind of kicked off this whole journey that you just uh, recapped. Yeah, for sure. Well, when I was working at US, US News and World Report, I had a side business doing like social media as like basically as a freelancer. 
And that was kind of the early days of, I ended up turning that into more of a content agency, a small one, a small shop. And so while I was doing that on the side, I ended up launching my first ebook and I launched lots of ebooks after that. I found it to be really fun and just so cool that you can kind of put something out there and no one has to tell you it's okay to publish. No one has to give you, you know, permission to do it. You can just put it out there and people will buy it. So I launched my first ebook in 2010, probably around then. And it was about how to build a part-time social media business, which was exactly what I had done. And it was kind of like the early days of, no one called it then, this then, but it was build in public, like, you know, 12 years ago <laughs> when you're just like sharing how you do what you do. So yeah, I launched that first ebook and it did really well. And it just got the gears turning in my head. I was like, and eventually that's why I, I ended up leaving US News to work on my own business full time because I just realized that there was a lot of opportunities there. What is the process of launching the ebook? The creative side kind of explains itself. Get the right what you want. No one can tell you what you can publish. What about the entrepreneurial side of that? Because for our audience, one of the things we talk about a lot is, is monetizing your content. Mm -hmm. We're really trying to get people who listen to the show to look beyond just the, a single model or the traditional model, just taking ads or just taking a mm -hmm. payment. You know, it, And I think for a lot of people that have a big audience, particularly in a, in a knowledge niche, you could sell an ebook that is a guide on how to do X, you know, whatever that space is. So what does that look like to actually launch that and try and get people to buy it or download it? And I know there's, you know, you could do funnels, you could just sell it on Amazon. Like for you, what was that like? And what was most rewarding and most challenging about it? Yeah, I mean, I love this as a model because there's really a digital product you can create for any business. There's always something you can create. And for me, I learned over the years because I've launched lots of different ebooks and online courses and resources as part of different businesses. And one thing I've learned is if your resource can help people make money, then they'll be more likely to buy it. So like, you know, for example, I launched an ebook about how to take a career break because when I was 27, when I left the Houston Chronicle, I backpacked solo on my own through French speaking Africa. So I wrote an ebook about how to take a career break. And I think it was really helpful to people that did get it, but it was so niche and it didn't help people make money. So they didn't really want to spend money on something like that. I enjoyed writing it. So it was like fun for me too. So, so I guess that's one thing to think through is like, why is someone going to buy this <laughs> and will, will they buy it? And what motivates people to buy? And then there's the kind of technical side and that's changed a lot in the last 10 years. It's a lot easier to do now. You still have to kind of hack different solutions together, but I used different solutions then than I would use now. In fact, I use something called eJunkie to sell eBooks for years and years, and it still exists. And it's very cheap and it's really reliable. The UX isn't that great. It doesn't look as cool as some of the newer tools, but figuring out like, how are you gonna collect payment? How are you gonna deliver it? And for an eBook specifically, what is the format of it? Like, how are you gonna give it to people? You know, back then I was doing PDFs but there's lots of different ways you can deliver stuff. And how did you promote it? Um, and then the third piece, like you said, is a marketing. Is <laughs> like, how are you gonna get people to buy it? So thinking about how can you create, ideally an email list that you can use to, to get the word out to people. And it's funny you asked about that because they're really doing the same thing that they got acquired. Like all of my experience with digital products, which is very, you know, creator oriented and like kind of like indie hackerish, it actually helps for like a much, can help for a much bigger business. And if they get acquired now, we're just starting to launch our, our first reports. And the reports that showcase acquisitions of online businesses, we just put our first one out. And because of that experience, I could think through like, okay, what should the format of this be? How should we deliver it? How are people gonna access it? If they're gonna pay for it, how are they gonna pay for it? Stuff like that. Before diving into that a little bit, I'd love to hear your mental 
approach to the trip to Africa? And then potentially after that trip, did you revise or look at your career differently after that break? Yeah. So this was in, I was 27. (laughs) It was in 2008. I was actually in Madagascar during the election that year. And I decided to do it because when I was in college, I studied abroad in Cameroon. So I really, that's in West Africa. So I really wanted to go back there. And so I went to journalism school. Then I got a, a job at the Houston Chronicle and I was super lucky to get to work at a pretty big newspaper right out of school. I started there in a temporary role, which I worked, it turned into a permanent role, which is how, how that happened. And so I was there for a few years and just started thinking about like all the adventures that I wanted to take and how I knew that it would be harder to do that once I had a family, which is 100% true because I have a family now. And I look back and I'm so glad I took some of those adventures that I took then. Some people said I was crazy to leave my job at that time because I had I did have a really good job and I really liked it. But I just felt like I wanted to do it then while I could. And I, I kind of, I tried to take an approach while I was traveling. I set a goal for myself where I'd write one journalistic piece every month. So for example, I went back, like when I was in, when I was in college, I had studied polygamy in Cameroon. So I went back and stayed with that family. And I actually wrote a story about polygamy for I think it was like the Christian Science Monitor or something. It was like more of a journalistic piece. And it was so cool that I got to turn like what I'd studied into something that other people would actually read. So I, I made a goal of just having one piece published each month in different publications. And that kind of gave me some purpose. And it also allowed me when I came back to be able to say, oh, I just wasn't just bumming around, which really is what I was mostly doing. <laughs> but it looked like I had like done it with the career focus, like I had something to show for it. So that was kind of how I got through making it look like, you know, there was a purpose to it. I feel like the polygamy topic could have been a hell of an ebook too. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you kind of get this itch in kind of striking out on your own with the ebook. You take your trip. The next step for you is the content agency. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. So why did you start it? What types of content and what types of partners were you working with? Uh, we have mm-hmm. a little bit of experience in the agency business, and there's all sorts of ways you can work with people. You can charge them. You can create mm-hmm. content. You have a rev share. What did that look like for you? Yeah, it kind of morphed over time. I really started it as a freelancer, at a, almost out of desperation, because when I was when I came back from that trip, I was looking for a job, and I started that when I was looking for a job, just as a way to like start doing something. And then I ended up getting a job, so I had to turn that business into a like I had to do it on the side. And then after I left U.S. News, I was doing that full time, but it never became it was me and a bunch of contractors. So it wasn't a huge agency. And even at the point when the penny hoarder bought us, I had a few of the contractors were like at full time hours. And I was at the point where I was asking myself, do I want to turn this into do I want to have employees? Like, what do I really want here? So, yeah, the way that we by then it had kind of morphed into an agency where our specialty was running blogs for other businesses. So the way we did it was they would pay us a retainer every month and we would, you know, create content for their blog. We did a lot of the audience growth stuff too. Like we might do their newsletter. Sometimes we did their social. In addition to the contractors that worked for me regularly, we had a much broader net of freelance writers, like dozens of people that we would rely on for the content. So when a company paid us, they pay us a retainer and we paid out of that to pay all the writers. So we got to manage that in a way that worked for us which I found helped um, increase the margins because like we got to make the decisions about who are the writers, what were the you know best efficiencies we could create. You know, we didn't want to hire a writer that was going to send, give us something that had, needed a lot of edits because then I had to pay the editor a lot to fix it. So thinking through things like that. 
So that retainer model, I'm guessing, probably helped too for just cash flow purposes and planning. Content's so difficult because you are relying on ads or other models. Now you know what's coming in each month, each month, how much you have to pay out, and you can begin to build in yes. your margins that way. Absolutely. And what, what the other really cool thing that happened during that time period is I had this realization. And looking back, I'm like really proud of myself of seeing this then because I feel like I have so much more experience now. But I realized that we were we like created this machine that was like creating content and, and growing blogs for other people. And I wanted to apply that to our own asset so that we could reap the upside over time. So that's when we started The Right Life, which is a website for writers. And I just put an editor on that blog, just like I did for all of our clients. We followed the exact same process we had for all of our clients to start that and, and grew that blog that way. And it turned into an asset over time. And so somewhere in between there, you're, you get aqua hired by the penny hoarder. They are, they're an affiliate, right? So you guys are creating, I guess, a different type of content that you may have been creating for some of your other clients. Is that right? Not really. It was okay. pretty similar to what we were doing for everybody. I mean, each client had their own needs, but we were just trying to write helpful, relevant information and just blog posts. So it was pretty similar. Did you find when you would bring on freelancers and writers that, you know, you're unique insofar as you have a, a journalistic background with an entrepreneurial bend? And, you know, from my experience, that's kind of a rare combination. There are people who are business minded and people who are journalistic minded. And many journalists I've come across are, you know, like they want to write and they don't want to think about, you know, the business model necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, for you, having a, a slightly more unique model that you weren't a traditional publication hiring writers, did you find it difficult or was a certain type of person that you looked for? I think I heard you say somewhere that you didn't always necessarily look for people who were, you know, classically trained journalists, but who could write and, and finding that right balance. For the penny hoarder, you mean? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's hard because so one cool thing that we went through with the penny hoarder was we wanted to make content accessible and easy to read and fun to read. So we wanted everything to be written in a really fun voice. But then I also wanted people who could like, yeah, had a journalistic background who could interview sources and understand how to cite properly. And quite frankly, like the ethics of, of a journalistic public publication, because we had a lot of those pieces. So yeah, it's very hard to find people with both. Like I find often journalists like they have trouble writing creatively, you know, myself included, because it's, it's kind of, you've been trained to do a certain, do it a certain way and it's hard to make, make it creative. And then creative writers often don't have that journalistic training and they might not follow the procedures that, or the practices that a journalist is, would think is obvious. So yeah, always trying to find people who can do both. And also just like thinking outside the box in terms of like who could be good for this and Maybe they don't have to have the exact background we're looking for because someone who doesn't fit inside that box might be able to do it better. How did you guys, I imagine a lot of this is, you know, there's affiliate content, right? Did you guys, you know, kind of keep the writers completely separate from the business aspect of it? You know, we've spent a lot of time in the affiliate space. And for us, it's always been a, a challenge to have the editorial staff do what they do and not let them think about like, hey, this is the way we're going to commercialize this content. How mm -hmm. did you guys at the Penny Hoarder kind of work through that process? We combined. I mean, we're a small company. So while I was there, well, we worked, I think at our peak, we had like 110 people, but it's shrunk now. Like they've really done a good job. I mean, I think this is a good thing of like making it more lean again. But even when we had, you know, 30 or 50 people, we all worked really closely together. So anyone who's creating content understood the business model and what we were going after. I can't remember the percentages here, but it's like the vast majority of the content that we created didn't really, didn't have, you call it affiliate, we call it a performance marketing. It didn't have a performance marketing bent to it. That was only like a tiny percentage of our content that had that. So we did have specific 
writers who were trained on the content that when they needed to collaborate with a client or be part of that client process, we found that it worked better to have like the vast majority of the newsroom was just working on content that didn't have that piece. And then we had a few select writers who were trained in best practices for the performance marketing content. Talk, I want to dig in on that for a second, because that kind of, it's matched our experience with performance marketing in the past, which is we've, you know, had websites and 80, 90% of the, some of the content sometimes had nothing to do with monetization. It was about establishing credibility with the mm-hmm. audience, quality edi- mm-hmm. editorial, entertaining editorial, you know, whatever it is. How important was that at the penny order to, you know, establish the site's legitimacy? It's a great site. Make it a quality site that isn't always focused on extracting the dollars. And then that, therefore, being beneficial to when you do write a piece of content that does have to make money, it carries that much more weight. Because I think there are so many people uh, who are starting out on their own who are like, hey, I want to do this model. I want to do performance marketing. I want to do affiliate. Every single piece of content they create has a link and they're trying to make money with it. And Mm -hmm. they're forgetting about the fact they have to establish some sort of authority and credibility. Yeah, it's super important. And I was like the person beating that drum again and again as the head of (laughs) the content is like, how can we establish, I called it trust. How can we establish trust with our audience? And I mean, we had a whole, I had like a trust campaign while I was there. We had a whole list of things that we were doing just to make sure that we didn't lose trust. Because in the last 10 years, content that's written online, it's lost a lot of its credibility. So you have to work really hard to overcome that. In fact, we're doing a lot of those things now that they got acquired. And you'll notice some of us, like for example, we have a fleshed out about page. Even even when we launched, we had an about page that like shared who we are why we're doing this, literally pictures of the people who are writing the content. Each author has their own bio that says why they're qualified to write that content. And then even at the bottom of every story that we write, we interview the founders who sold their business. So we get as much information as we can directly from the founder. But at the very bottom, we also link to all the other sources for all the other sources that we use for that story. So maybe it was a press release or a story that, you know, TechCrunch wrote or a Facebook post that the founder shared. Like we put those all at the bottom of the story. And maybe some people would say that's overkill. To me, I feel like I want people to know that like we're doing real work here where we're, we're working really hard to gather information from respected sources. And also like if we're using something that somebody else got first, we cite them. As a journalist, that's important to me. So, but I think like finding ways to go overboard to show that you're you're credible is really important. Can we hear some examples of what the trust campaign was made up of? Just just because it just obviously today, it, journalistic integrity to your point uh, is so important. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe it'd be it'd be great for some of the listeners just to hear some of those ideas. Maybe some that are you know common sense, but some that somebody goes, wow, that's that's something I could implement uh, into our business. Mm-hmm. Some of them I just mentioned, you know, making sure, I I can't believe how many startups don't have a great about page. And I don't want to just read about the company. I want to read about the people behind the company. That's what I care about. Who are the people who are running this? Like, do I trust them? Especially in the early days, that's what people care about. And later, like over years, you can transfer that trust from the founder to the rest of the company, but it takes a while. So we had like some of our writers had bios that were like, you know, I like cats and being on the beach and stuff like that. Because it's, it's, you know, and it was giving, it was showing personality, which we like to do, but we kind of went through and said, okay, you can be fun, but you also need to say, and I reported for um, Forbes for four years before I came here. Like you got to put in something so people know that you're not only a real person, but also you, there's a reason why I can trust you for writing this article. And then the other thing that we did, and I don't know if this still exists today, but for a while, we had a page that explained like how we did the work we did and how we review stuff and 
how we work with our partners, kind of how we did performance marketing and how we did it in a way that would benefit the reader. Just to, like real true transparency. Because <laughs> if people had these questions, then they could they could easily find answers and feel good about what they were reading. A lot of this I'll add too, like a lot of this, it dovetails with SEO because, you know, eat for Google's eat, all of these things will help you rank higher in Google. So that was another reason we wanted to do it. Yeah, for sure. So I want to dig into the acquisition piece, you know, with, I want to talk about they got acquired, but you know, I think I'm guessing part of the reason you started the site is because you've been through two acquisitions, one, the Acquahire, and then I believe you eventually sold the right life. Mm-hmm. Talk about that process of selling that asset for you. Mm-hmm. With the right life sale? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the second, with the right life, it's funny because I had gone through it once. So I kind of had an idea of what to expect, but it's very different selling an asset than selling, than going through an Acquahire. You know, I wasn't planning to stay on. I had really systemized how we ran the business. But I was able to apply learnings, I think, from the first sale to the second one. And the biggest one for me there was like, and I've written about this on my own blog, it's like all the formulas that people give you, you know, revenue multiples, yada, 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 none of that really matters in the end. What matters is what you're willing to sell it for and what someone else is willing to pay. And like, I think going through it the first time, especially because I had nothing to lose, like when, because Kyle Taylor, he's the founder of the Penny Hoarder, he asked, he's, he approached me about an acquire. I never had any intention of becoming an employee again. I, I loved you know, running my own business. At this point, I had worked with him long enough that I could see that it was gonna be a good fit. But you know, I didn't expect that opportunity. I can't remember where I was going with this. I was gonna say, oh, so I had nothing to lose. So like, if I, if I didn't take it, like I just continued building my own thing, which I was excited about anyways. So you know, he had to make it worth my while. And same thing with the right life. Like I didn't have to part with that asset. So I think obviously you wanna be in a position where you don't have to sell so that you have some leverage. But just knowing that all the formulas that are out there, they're really good benchmarks and they can provide some guidance and helpful information. But in the end, especially if you have a buyer who has a plan for how to combine perhaps their your asset with theirs so that one plus one equals three instead of two, uh, if they have a plan like that, then you should be able to you know, maybe exceed some of the formulas out there. That's best case scenario. <laughs> I know it doesn't always work out that way, but that's what I was going for. No, I, th- I think it's great advice. You know, the value of something is what somebody else is willing to pay and, and everything else is just noise. So you take this, uh, you know, amalgam of experiences that you've just kind of walked us through. A couple of exits, two different types of exits, an acquire and asset sale, uh, creating content in a variety of ways, ebook. And then I'm guessing all of these things just seem to, to me at least, kind of dovetail into they got acquired, a content site that has resources for people that is focused on, obviously, the acquisition of businesses. So let's you know really dig into that. You do this unbelievable journalistic job of chronicling these you know six, seven, eight-figure exits. We've seen it firsthand from you know your writers, how diligent they were about not just taking our word for it, finding examples, you know public articles, things like that. How do you begin to think about growing that as a business? I'm guessing that you've got a longer term plan than just, hey, we're just going to write these articles and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it was I, when I was trying to figure out what to do next, <laughs> I wanted I knew I wanted to do a media company again because I wanted to use my own what I was good at. But I also wanted there to be something different that was a challenge for me personally. And this is a challenge in two ways. One is it's on a topic that I'm really not an expert in. Like I definitely I'm our target demographic, so I understand the pain points. But I'm not an expert in M&A, although I'm slowly becoming one, <laughs> which has been really fun. And then second, we are focusing a lot on the data. And so long term, I'd like to monetize more through that data that we're collecting. And I, I've never run a media company that has monetized in that way before. 
you look at that as a, as a product, you know, selling, selling data information, having members, you know, what do you, what do you think is the best, you know, best route for you long-term? Yeah. So when I was selling both of my businesses, I wish that there was information out there that could help me figure out what my business might be worth. I mean, it's just like if you sell a house, you have real estate comps and this exists for much bigger companies, but it really hasn't existed until we started doing it for the smaller market. So I think long-term, like maybe two years from now, we'll have a database that people can log into, maybe with a subscription, maybe it's just like a one-year fee and you can pull whatever data out of there that you want. Right now we have about 1,400 acquisitions in there that we feel confident fit our criteria. They're not all fleshed out yet, but they're in there. We have probably twice as many or maybe three times as many in there that we, but a lot of them we don't know enough about yet to say they can, they actually fit our criteria. And by fit our criteria, I mean, they sold for between 100,000 and 50 million. That's like the box that we've created since 2017 and their online businesses. But while we're working till, towards that, we have two things that we're providing. One is you, you saw like the stories on the front end. We have lots of stories of entrepreneurs who have built and sold their businesses. And there's so many interesting things to learn from that. And then we're releasing some of the data via reports. So like we just put out our first one, it's 21 companies that sold in 2021. So our goal is to launch many more of those as we collect enough data to do so. That's gonna be helpful for people. The next one's gonna be on content companies. So it'll be about 20 content companies that have sold in the last few years. Lexi, have you had the ability to, or have seen the want from some news publishing companies? Like I could see CNBC, you know, kind of falling over some of that data maybe semi-annually or whatever, to get a peek inside of the industry, to get a peek inside of the marketplace. Have you attempted to kind of go that avenue yet of, of working it up to the larger networks? Or, or you know, obviously, I would assume that is kind of part of, the, part of the plan as well. Well, I see two obvious demographics. One of them I know well, which is founders. But founders probably only need that information. Like they, they always, we have a lot of people who are building businesses that they don't want to sell immediately, but they might want to sell it eventually. So they just want to learn about this. But in terms of like paying for data, you probably only need that at the point of sale or like when you're serious about selling your business. There's another demographic and we have a lot of people who read who, are, who fall into this group too, which are like M&A professionals, people in this space who are going through transactions all the time. Um, lawyers, financial professionals, people who buy businesses, like they have a lot more times when they need to get their hand hands on this kind of data. That's how we're thinking about it. But, you know, I'm hoping that we're kind of starting with the founders, especially because what we're finding is sponsorships have been a really successful part of the business so far, like bigger than I had expected. And they want to reach people who want to sell their businesses. So I think it makes sense to keep focusing on growing that demographic. And then my hope is that we can also end up selling this data to other people that are in the space that, you know, have more money and probably more need for it, even than the founders. It's kind of this this issue of, you know, going wide, you know, and not as deep mm -hmm. with founders and get scale and get sponsorships and then go and narrow, but deep with, you know, the people, the stakeholders in that space, we're always mm -hmm. doing it. We had a guest a couple of shows ago, uh, Jason Barry runs a site called Barrett Sports Media and he mm -hmm. writes all about the sports radio industry. And mm -hmm. his view on it was like, all he wants to do is go deep. He's like, I don't care if I got 10,000 sports fans learning about what's happening in New York radio, I want to mm -hmm. reach the 50 market managers, you know, mm -hmm. 
talk, I think what you're getting at here and talk about this a little bit for our listeners, but what you're describing is those B2B customers, one, the, the information is kind of evergreen and valuable to them, but I'm guessing, you know, they're going to be willing to pay more for that as well. So kind of talk mm-hmm. about the importance of that. Cause I think it's a, a theme we're starting to see here as we talk to more um, founders in the content space. Yeah, exactly. And B2B is such a funny word to me because you're really still selling to people, but they're people who have companies that make a lot of money that can pay a lot of money for products. So yeah, I think that that is a huge opportunity, but quite frankly, like I need to learn more about that market and, and I'm doing it little by little as, as we grow. Whereas, and, and like more of my experience is in the B2C space. It's, it feels easier to me to grow, you know, a bigger B2C audience. So hopefully going that B2B route will stretch me over time. Have you thought about how to market to them differently? You do a lot. You know, you're really good on social, and you know we've seen you in, uh, in some of these you know groups, you know, like these online groups for creatives and media types. Have you thought about how to reach you know kind of like the professional set, the lawyers, the M and A people? Totally different than the content you know media. Yeah, folks. not really. I mean, I think it's working. Like whatever I'm doing now is also pulling them in, mostly because they are desperate to connect with these people, with founders who may eventually sell their business. Like until we came onto the scene, there's really the content around how to sell your business as for like six or seven or low eight figures, like in the small market, is almost non-existent. The only place you could find it is with on, you know, websites of like maybe brokers, M&A advisors, people who have a dog in the fight. And it doesn't mean they're not providing good information. They A lot of them are. But I think consumers often want like a third party that can filter it through a lens and I don't want to say dumb it down, but like make it understandable for those of us who have been focused on growing a business for years. Like you have to learn all this stuff really quickly. And there's really a learning curve. Like, you know, when I was selling my business, I didn't have any friends in M&A. Like my brother is actually an M&A, a much bigger M&A. So, you know, he gave me some advice, but I, if I needed a broker, I wouldn't have known who to go to. You just don't necessarily have those people in your circle when you're building. So I think having a place where they know they can like I get messages from people all the time who just like DM me personally and they're like do you can you recommend a an M&A advisor we're ready to sell so I think people in that and just I mean I guess how much that's happening already has been surprising to me I think it's a good thing but seeing that come in has been has validated to me that there's a need there and the people who provide those services they want to reach those people so finding a way to help them connect in a way that's like a win-win I think will be a big piece of our business going forward. Charging to access that that list of resources or people. Well, I'm hoping like we started setting up some commission relationships with brokers. So if like, for example, you know, someone asked me two days ago for a recommendation, they want to sell an e-commerce company. So I'll just like, I have a list and I'm like, okay. And I'm starting to get to know all the people in this space, which is interesting. And I mean, there's a lot more people to know, but I can look at that short list and say, okay, I know, you know, a, C, and E, they all sell e-commerce companies or they specialize in that and they all have good reputations or I know someone who sold with them before and make that introduction. And I think that's like a win for everybody. Of the overall revenue makeup where they got acquired, is it, is it mainly the, the sponsorship part of the, of the revenue model? It's completely sponsorships. And I think I'm going to lean hard on that, like more so than I expected because I'm finding it's a really good way to fund the business especially in these early days. Like eventually I'd like to have products that we can sell. And perhaps, you know, there are other, a lot of so many other opportunities, like maybe some of these referral commissions become part of our revenue makeup. But at the moment, it's purely sponsorships. 
the uh, the guy I mentioned a minute ago, Jason Barrett, he actually charges people in the space to kind of list their profile so people can access it. And mm. I thought that was a really interesting way of going about it. It's like yeah, a one-time a fee, but you're on the site, you get to get featured, uh, all mm. that. So fascinating, you know, just to really, you know, hear you kind of dig in and talk about all of the different ways beyond sponsorship. Sponsorship works today, but you're thinking about like, hey, how do we get these really high value, high value eyeballs and, and readers? On the personal, oh, one last question on the site. Are you self-funding? Are you taking investment? What does that look like for, for that you got acquired? Yeah, I'm self-funding. I basically took some money from the last sale and put it into this one. But my goal is to be, you know, covering our expenses by the end of the year. And this, I think this is gonna be the first month that we'll cover our expenses. I don't think that'll be consistent for the next couple months, but we're getting there. <laughs> Slowly but surely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, it's so different. I think that's one thing that's been challenging is like going from a heavily resourced company like the Penny Hoarder, which also was bootstrapped, by the way. But, you know, I, I didn't come at the very, in at the very beginning. So we had a, a lot of resources to work with and I had a huge team to do stuff. So now it's like I can see the path, but I have to be really careful about not setting too high expectations for what's going to get done in a certain amount of time, because it's just me and I'm working about 25 hours a week right now. You know, I have, I have a family, my husband's also self-employed and we kind of juggle the kids together and I have a small team of contractors, but it's like, sometimes I see myself like thinking, oh, we can do this, this, and this. And in one week, and I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> that was with a team of 30 full-time employees. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. So like resetting the expectations around bootstrapping again. I think that's a good segue. We got a couple minutes left here, but I want to get just a few questions about the personal side of running any business, let alone a content business. You know, I, I follow you on social and I think we're connected on LinkedIn and you put together these really compelling posts about how you think about structuring not only your business, but your day and your time, right? You know, talk about that. You just talked about mm -hmm. family and, you know, how you, you don't work the full traditional work week. And is, do you, you know, or do you adhere to it as rigidly as, you know, you kind of put it out there? Because it's really, I'm like, wow, I wish I was that diligent the way you write about it. Oh, man. Well, it's being forced to do it. And the reason I write about it is because it's really hard for me. I think any, if you see any writer who's writing about stuff, how-to guides, it's because they struggle with it, you know? <laughs> and th that's been my biggest struggle since becoming a parent. Because I, when I, especially when I was running, when I was working a full-time job and running a small business on the side, I could just work whenever and nobody cared. And I loved it, you know? So I didn't mind doing it. And now I I don't have that many hours. Like I have, I have kids. Um, my kids are five and six now. And I, I've already found it's gotten a lot easier than when they were younger. But I also like to hike and, you know, do yoga and take care of myself. And I really believe there is not, like, I think a 40 hour work week is totally unrealistic for a working parent. I know that's like what our society says is normal, but I just don't know how anyone does it. It's impossible. Even last week I worked a lot because we're about to go on a vacation. And I'm about to take three or four weeks like off completely. So I've been really working hard. And I felt like I put in so many hours last week. I was, I put in like every hour I could. I got babysitters at night. My parents watched the kids one day. I get up often at like 5.30 in the morning just to get like one hour in before the kids get up. And I looked at my timer and I'd put in 42 hours. <laughs> and I mean, that's really work. Like it's not, I'm not wasting time during those hours. And I think like if you're in office, even if you have an eight hour day, you might be chatting with someone or like, you know, there's a lot of time wasters. But the reason I share that stuff is because I find it really challenging. And I always want more time to work. I also want more time to do personal stuff and family stuff. But yeah, time management for me is hard. It'd be easier if you could add six hours to the day, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm always trying to figure it out. And it also feels like there's never, once you figure it out, like something changes and you have to figure it out again. So it's always, there's always a transformation happening. 
I've kind of come to look at it though. And I think writing helps me do this as like a fun challenge to navigate rather than a pain. And I think that attitude helps. Lexi, is there, is there one tool, whether it be any part of, of your, your day or running the business that you feel that you just could not live without? Well, right now we're in ClickUp pretty heavily, which I'm really enjoying. And it's my first time using that for content management. And I'm, I'm loving that one. I'm not familiar with that. What is ClickUp? Yeah. It's a project management tool. And it's general. It's not made for content specifically, but it's so easy to set up. And yeah, I'm finding it really good. Oh, I'm curious to see, because I found a lot of, I've tried so many project management tools for content and I find some of them break as you get bigger. So I'm curious to see if this one holds up. <laughs> I'm very intrigued by this now. So we're putting together a list of all the tools that our guests mentioned, and this is one we had not heard of. So we're going to definitely get added to the list. Last one, you know, everyone, I think in business, so certainly in bootstrap businesses, especially in the content business, has had that moment where you're like, I'm going to fail. This isn't going to work. This, or there's some level of doubt that creeps in. You've done a number of things over the last 10 to 12 years. Is there one moment that really stands out to you where you're like, I'm not sure if, if this is sustainable? I'll tell you that my, my brain doesn't really work like that. Like I don't really think of things as I like to look forward. And I, even looking back, sometimes people are like, what would you do differently? And I'm like, I mean, obviously I didn't do everything perfectly and lots of things didn't go right, but I tend to gloss over those things in my brain and my brain thinks of like, of them as you learned something and you moved on to the next thing. So I don't know if there's one moment, but I can tell you that I self-doubt all the time. I mean, every day. We just put out this report for They Got Acquired, which felt like a huge milestone. And we had a great sponsor in it, which I was really excited about. But even after we put it out, I was like, am I gonna be able to sell the next one? <laughs> Will I, will I be able to spill the next sponsorship? You know, is this, is it just, did it just work that one time or is it going to work next time too? So, I mean, I think it's normal to have self-doubt all the time. <laughs> I don't know if there's one moment. It's just layered in there and every single day. <laughs> it's an unbelievably common thread in all of the people we speak to. It's just, it's everyone. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what drives us, right? It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. amazing to hear everyone talk about that same self-doubt. I still, I will say though, I don't know if this is my personality or what, but I always believe that it will work. I never, even if I think like, will that thing not work? I believe that the whole company or project or my life will still work. Like it's just about figuring out an option B or C or D if the first one wasn't, doesn't turn out. We always joke that we go around just pressing buttons and when you find one that works, you just like keep pressing it again and again <laughs> and again until it stops working. Exactly. Lexi, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on. I want, please tell the listeners, uh, we'll, we'll obviously add all this to the show note on the website as well and on social, but where they can find you, the website, you personally, uh, you're an excellent follow on, on social media. So please plug away. Thanks. Uh, so we're at theygotacquired.com slash newsletter if you want to sign up for the newsletter. I'm at alexisgrant.com. If you sign up for my newsletter there, you might get something from me like once a year. <laughs> if you want to read what I write, that's the best way to get on the list, but I don't send much anymore. And then I'm on Twitter at Alexis Grant. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it was a really good conversation. And um, yeah, best of luck going forward. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you. Okay, so that was Lexi Grant, founder and CEO of They Got Acquired. Really interesting model. I particularly like how, well, going back to her days at the Penny Hoarder, to us, this one really jumped out to me, how 
most of the content they create there. And this is a major affiliate site. And she didn't really talk about that because she was focused more on the quality of the content, understandably. Penny Hoarder, I think I read last year or two years ago, did $20 million, I believe, in affiliate revenue. Um, some articles out there on that. I don't know how accurate they are, but it's a big affiliate site. They get people who read about personal finances, and my guess is they work with credit card companies and things like that. But what she talked about was how so much of the content, 80 90% of it, was not meant actually to make money, which is kind of counter to anyone who runs an affiliate site, almost every piece of content, you want to have a link or something you're promoting. Give me your thoughts on that, because I have many. You have to remind me all the time that our brains work in such a way of transactional, monetization, everything has its purpose to you know the bottom line of driving revenue. And we have to remember that there are aspects in other jobs and industries where, to her point, they were the agency for building blog content. They were not there to specifically drive revenue you know, for those companies. So that was, you know, our brains can't necessarily wrap around that real quick, around that very fast. So it's different in that sense. So, you know, hearing that and then understanding everything else was amazing. And then seeing where it all leads is, is another aspect to that. But the, the beginning of the story, I was very interested to see where it would go because, you know, we're aware of her via they got acquired. So it was interesting to hear to hear that play out. To me, it reminds me a little bit of citing Gary Vee's, you know, either popular or not, depending on your audience, but he always talks about jab, 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 right hook. Give your audience something, give your audience something, then eventually every now and then you can ask them for something, but you got to give, you got to bring value. And I think the way she described the penny hoarders, you know, they're trying to create content that is actually useful for people about saving, about personal finance. And most of that content isn't an ad for a credit card or a bank account. But if you do nine of those pieces of content to tell people how to create their own budget or whatever it is, the 10th piece could be like, hey, here's a savings account or here are three good savings accounts that has affiliate links. You know, we've told our story a bit, you know, here on the podcast at various times. And that's what worked for us in sports, which was an around counter to the whole betting affiliate industry that we were in is so much of the other content was just all created every single piece of content was littered with links. And we're like, we got these websites that have these sports readerships and 90, 95% of those pieces of content aren't meant to make money, but it builds allegiance with the audience that when you do want to show them. And I think so many people who have an audience really need to think about that. Like whatever your business model is, don't just have every piece of content be directly related to monetization. Bring some value, you know, like this podcast right now, there's no sponsor on this. It's a long-term play for us. Bring some value and then you can layer in the, you know, the sales pitch or the right hook, so to speak. Yeah, and there's also, to your point, there's a timing for all of this, right? Like if we were to launch monetized media and all of a sudden we're focused on, hey, go to our, you know, monthly revenue page, see the mics we use, litter it with affiliate links. You know, immediately somebody's probably like, oh, this is just all, you know, they're just trying to redo the process again that they had done. And it's not that. So you have to understand just exactly what your drive is, what the purpose is, what the long-term goal is. And uh, she's definitely someone who, when you hear her talk about things, of the trust of the content, you know, high journalistic integrity. Like once again, you know, we continue to hear this in all the shows. It's, it's no secret that people are successful who are very concerned with the integrity of the product. You know, so it's don't go too fast. Don't skip over just to get to something because that integrity of product is crucial. Yeah. I mean, when her website wrote about us, I was shocked at the amount of follow-up. 
you know, it's a relatively small website. She had, you know, a, a small team of writers and we got follow up on specific details we had provided about our acquisition. They wanted to get right. And ours was kind of tricky and confusing and there was a lot of parts and we've done other interviews. We, we've met with PR agencies. We've worked with people who probably didn't ask the level of questions that her writer and editorial team asked of us to get it right and found sources. You know, we've done an interview for the Business Journal that didn't have that much follow up. You know, so to her, it's not just lip service uh, about the journalistic integrity. We've seen it. They really fact checked every every little detail of like a 400 word blog post. And ultimately, I think that's why these reports that they got acquired or generated to take a look at the first report that she mentioned that they just were coming out with it. I believe the day that she was recording with us. I downloaded it. It's deep. Yeah. Perfect. So just getting back from vacation, I've been a little lazy in, in that aspect, but I'll take a look at it. And I want to see how they break it out ultimately by industry and how deep they go into things because that is information as the creator economy blooms and so many things change. I mean, you can feel it. We are we're in like a, a pivotal moment, you know, a paradigm shift with where everything is going with business and influencers and creators and entrepreneurs. That data is going to be worth a lot of money. And obviously, their revenue right now is just based on sponsorship for they got acquired. But that's to the moon with potential in terms of where you know they can use the data that comes in, which, by the way, as for right now, I, I would assume is coming in as, as free, right? Because they're getting it from the people who got acquired. So it's a beautiful working balance of, hey, we're going to give you, Jason and Kyle, some free publicity on your acquisition. And then they're getting data to then use for their reports. Yeah. And I was surprised. And I think encouraged, definitely encouraged, to learn that she doesn't have a very specific long-term goal. Just kind of following her, she seems very thoughtful and seeing how thorough they were in the editorial process, she seems very thoughtful about where she's at, where she's going, and how she's going to get there. And I was actually expecting her to say, hey, yes, this is the plan. Year one, we want to have this data, and we're going to put it into this product, and we're going to sell it, and we're going to attack these people. And she's definitely thinking that way, but she seems to be more open to letting the audience and the data they take in kind of develop its own course and do what's right for it. And I think, I actually think that sort of flexibility is good. If for no other reason that I don't think you or I are like that regimented about planning out like years one, two, three, and four. So it's good to hear that other people who are successful are also like that. But she seems to be open to, let's do this. We have an audience, we have sponsorships, we're gonna break even, and now we can determine the best path and the best model and, and the ways to grow the audience and money, which I think every creator should be thinking about. You might go into it thinking you're gonna have this great affiliate business, you're gonna create a product off of your you know, lipstick influencer campaign, and you might just learn out that you're making a ton of ad revenue or you, you have newsletter subscribers, like always keeping that open mind. Do you feel like the data she's collecting is almost like the Bloomberg of like medium-sized business acquisitions? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is like the inside word, the inside information on what is happening per sector. You know, there's reports on acquisitions, you know, from press releases and things that get picked up. But to then be able to aggregate that and find trends, you know, and, and statistical analysis out of that and be able to break it down by industry and sector and so on. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the goal of, I think, of what, you know, the Bloomberg Terminal essentially was always trying to and continues to try and do today for investors. So, yeah, I, I think she's really onto something. And her approach, her relaxed approach, yeah, I don't know if she would term it as relaxed, but she comes across as a very relaxed personality, you know, having, you know, going down to Africa. And, you know, kind of just getting away. And then, and I understand she'd been there previously, but that's a different kind of mindset for how you approach things and also understanding yourself and your business. She comes across as highly introspective. 
that really bodes well, I think, for where she's taking things. You're going to have to be that type of person to run that type of business. Yeah, that'll be successful for no other reason. You know, I mean, Bloomberg is aggregating mostly publicly available data. These are public companies and you know, it has the media arm that covers everything. But it's different with private businesses. The public companies, the data is consistently formatted. Right. You know, you put out a financial statement, it has X, Y and Z. And then Bloomberg does a great job of aggregating that and you filter through it. But private companies, especially in the creator space, they're such unique businesses. They're some are so small, you know, and you could find these pockets like she has where you just focus just on the acquisition portion. You're not going to collect all the data. It's impossible because there's, you know, millions of, of these small, small to medium sized businesses out there. But you you focus in on a relatively narrow band. And I think she said it's between like 50 and 500,000 or thereabouts, 20 and 500. Hundred thousand, and then you own that, and you become a valuable source to people in that space. I think she's going to have a lot of success with the B two B aspect. And she said she wasn't really thinking about it, and now she's getting the early audience. She, you know, she's been able to get some publicity for her brand, and that'll bring in the sponsorship dollars. But those lawyers, those M and A advisors, you know, there's real money attached to just one opportunity that comes their way that I think she's going to find that those to be pretty lucrative sponsorships. You know, the days of your local lawyer and banker, you know, promoting themselves on a restaurant's place card are over, right? The realtors are going to go to realtor publications. The lawyers are going to go to things that are in their space that have a captive audience. And, you know, it's it's good for everybody. It gives you more targeted advertising that, by the way, doesn't have to run through Facebook or Google. Yeah. Now, the continued niching of everything provides these opportunities. And it's just, we're just going to continue to see the carving out and carving out and carving out of everything as things move forward. All right. So that was Lexi Grant, uh, founder of They Got Acquired. If you are listening to this and you would like to be acquired or you would like to monetize your audience and you think someone you know would like this podcast or this conversation, tell two friends. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something and then he tells two friends and they tell two friends and they tell their friends and so on and so on and so on. You know how these things go. Compound growth. So we're not great growth marketers, but we do understand compound growth rate. So if you like this, tell two friends and then tag us at Monetize Media HQ on Twitter, at Kyle Scott, L, all one word, and at Nick Z-I-E-R-N-I-C-K on Twitter. Tag any of us, tell us the two friends you told, or just lie to us and tell us you told two friends. And if you want to bounce your business off us, your idea, uh, and we'll, we promise to engage with you and give you some feedback on whatever it is. And then Jason, how can they listen to this podcast? Well, first of all, let me add something real fast. We will give you an in-depth look at your business, by the way. Like, truly, if, if you like what you've heard and you find us to be the littlest bit of credible in our processes here, we, we certainly would love to give you some advice and thoughts on anything. So, you know, definitely do tell two friends and let us know. What we'd love for you to do is wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, give us a five-star review. And uh, that would be really helpful. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. 